The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome back, everyone. Moving into the heart of our eight-week class, and hopefully, you know the really seeing how unusual and um, yeah, just rare it is to have put aside eight weeks to get to know dukkha. And even in this most ordinary sense, just to like, well, what is my mind's relationship to mental and physical pain? Why would we presume we've learned everything there is to learn in terms of managing this central part of being a human being, right? How... Do we relate? How do we, you know, handle the very ordinary and unavoidable pain? And what is it about this statement that I think I mentioned last week or earlier in the course about pain being inevitable, unavoidable, suffering being optional? And to really have some version of that pointing out present during our day when we bump into some pain, mental or physical, or when we're sitting and maybe we're afflicted by boredom or restlessness or just ordinary back pain, knee pain, being a little too cold, being a little too warm. And then just to recall that simple instruction, pain is unavoidable. So that means, that's another way of saying that is pain isn't a problem, It isn't a personal problem. Pain is just what happens sometimes. Just like joy isn't a problem, it's what happens sometimes. Pleasure, it's what happens sometimes. Now it's like this. But that I personally feel like I'm being oppressed by this pain or burdened, I have a problem, that's the optional. That suffering is considered optional. Now that should get us inter- get the mind interested. Whoa, doesn't feel like an option, you know? Because why? Um, you know, because we always presume we're smart. So why would I choose the option of being a suffering human being right now if it was really an option? Or like the experience of loss, the real, very real pain of loss. Why would anybody choose to suffer? And it's deeply humiliating to sense that what, how I'm relating, how I'm showing up is self-destructive or, you know, causing suffering and optional, right? But, you know, we see it all the time in our friends, don't we? Like how they're handling something and they're making it worse. That doesn't seem so out of the box, right? Don't you catch your brother, your sister, your friend, your partner, even my cat. I see how it has these patterns that are clearly uh, agitating it, not changing anything, not leading to happiness, and yet the cat acts out the pattern. You know, we want to say, hey, you can do this, you can do that, but th- the conditions aren't going to change. You're still not going to go outside or something like that. 
Don't you see how you're just making things worse? Right? I mean, how many of you who are parents have said that countless times to your kids? Don't you see how you're making it worse? As a school teacher, you know, which I did for a while in the 80s and 90s, um, you know, a lot, and I was a behavior specialist for a while in the schools. And, you know, one of the things we try to do when the person was willing to listen is, like, have a person be reflective about their actions and choices and attitudes and kind of connect the dots. Do you see how the way you're relating to this is causing things to get worse, causing yourself to suffer, right, to make that connection? So we definitely see it in others. Can we begin to see that in ourselves? And so our life is our laboratory. This is the time. You know, we have the support from the community and from the teachings that I've sent out and the, these talks and discussions that we have here and the small groups that we'll have tonight to really, um, in a deep way, make this impression that this is a relevant area of study. And we actually have everything we need to study how our mind relates to this more ordinary level of pain, mental, physical pain. Next couple of weeks, we'll look more at the Viparanami, Nama Dukkha, and the Sankara Dukkha, the more subtle pain. And we'll do that by looking at Vedana, feeling tone. right? Because it's understanding feeling tone that helps us look and get to know the Dukkha of even when things are really good. And the more most subtle kind of dukkha, that basically sensuality, sense experience itself, is not a suitable refuge for our happiness. Right? So sankara dukkha really points to the most subtle um, aspect of suffering is the wrong idea that my life as sense experience or sensual experience, that somehow I can find satisfaction in a lasting way. That that's in a way the purpose of my life is to find conditions that are permanently satisfying. And the not finding of that permanent satisfaction from sense experience is the deepest root of suffering. Wanting it but not finding it is that pervasive agitation that you could say even that pervasive hunger that drives, in Buddhist terms, the cycles of suffering. We're looking for something, the absence of contentment. Now, I know we, we touch peace, we touch moments of peace and contentment, like one of the most powerful flavors of being free from the cycles of suffering is moments of real love. And so you might remember how that, like in Buddhist terms, takes us off the wheel temporarily until we get sucked back back into it into the hunger for some experience. Like we might be in that place of a really 
simple and wholesome love, not love with attachment, compassion, appreciation, gratitude, even equanimity. And then we'll we'll want to use it to have permanent satisfaction. There'll be a sense of a me who recognizes how much contentment, how much safety and ease is present, and then wants to put it in the bank. So it will always be there for me. right? And then that hunger, dukkha, is back, isn't it? So that's where we'll go next week to really... And so it's homework, because I might not have time at the end with the small groups and all. So for homework next week, really get interested in when conditions are really nice, really get intimate. So you're not like, being standoffish with your nice experiences. And just ordinary nice experience. Don't look for like special, oh, this isn't nice enough. Any nice experience will do. Any relatively pleasant, internal, external, no matter the causes for the pleasantness and the contentment and the delight and the joy, right? Just the key is that the mind gets interested in those moments. It's fresh. It's like, oh, wow. Yeah, this is actually a nice moment. Let me not like figure, you don't have to figure out anything out. You don't have to figure anything out. It's about being intimate. Let me really be sensitive here. Let me be really interested. And see if you, what you find. Like I don't even want to say, do you find dukkha there? Because you might like construct it. This is supposed to be dukkha, you know. Just get intimate with it. Because remember, the dukkha comes from the misalignment, right? Where the mind is projecting a somebody who wants to use the pleasantness to save me as my savior, right? That's what causes the problem. It's not the pleasantness, having a nice moment, feeling the sunshine on your body or hearing the sound of a bird or hanging out with a friend or, you know, whatever it might be. That might be, might be one of those moments where you're mindfully aware of a pleasantness. You really want to understand that part of dukkha, that even when things are pleasant, the mind has a very deep groove of spoiling it because it constructs the sense of a me who wants to use the pleasantness to give me, to save me, to give me pleasure forever, or to quench my desire for pleasure. But the desire for pleasure was constructed. It isn't actually there in the way we imagine. It's there. It doesn't need to be quenched. Right? The sense of somebody who wants eternal pleasure or somebody who wants eternal safety, we think we have to address that raging desire, but we don't. It just needs to be acknowledged and felt and seen and understood as just what it is. It's just that desiring or wanting. It's really quite simple. So this you know, where we're going next week will be really interesting. So where, 
as in the last couple of weeks, the emphasis was just noticing discomfort and pain, both emotional and physical. Now we're really noticing the positive side of Vedana, the pleasurable side of Vedana. Vedana is the underlying feeling tone. Remember, Vedana is actually a mental happening. And any moment of sense experience, seeing the black cushion, even something as ordinary as seeing the black cushion sitting there, because of the past conditioning of my mind, that's for me probably, you know, slightly pleasant. But one way or another, the mind is assigning pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality to everything we see, everything we hear, everything we touch, everything we taste and smell, and even everything we think. There's really no way that gets stopped. It's a kind of natural, inevitable um, functioning of what we call the mind to assign a feeling tone. And again, it's going to be different for each of us because we're conditioned differently. So you might see something or hear something I'm hearing the same thing you're hearing, but my mind might assign pleasure to the sound, and your mind might assign neutrality or unpleasantness to the sound. So we're really getting curious about the pleasure, the pleasantness that the mind assigns to any of our six sense gates, the five physical senses, or a thought, a memory. Right? Oh, that's pleasant, that memory or that thought. And then we're, we're just sort of wanting to be close to it. And can there be a pure moment of pleasure without it being spoiled? And how does it get spoiled? And the key that we remember right from the start, right? because the Buddha said that um, the very cause of suffering is the not understanding suffering. The cause of dukkha is the not seeing it and understanding it. Right? So we have to understand how it gets spoiled. How does ordinary moments of pleasure get spoiled? It's interesting, like I wanted a treat this afternoon and the Birchwood has uh, their, I think they make the scones in the morning, but by, I don't know, three in the afternoon, they're half price. So sometimes I'll stop by and have afternoon tea with a scone. And, uh, you know, and it's sort of like I noticed it today because I was preparing for the talk tonight, you know, and the anticipation. And when and I walked to the Birchwood and got my scone for $1.86 and <laughs> came home. And, and, and I noticed the sort of like that little bit of dukkha when I was done, the wild blueberry jam, which you can get on sale at the co-op, which I just bought, and some butter. And, you know, it was kind of nice. And then I noticed the, it was, I think you could even use the word betrayal, like when it was done, and I, was, I wasn't any different. Except it was worse than, like, not being better off for having done all that because there was like that sense of betrayal like um, 
you know, just expecting that sense experience to be meaningful, quenching in a way it doesn't, acting out a desire doesn't quench the habit of desiring. It actually feeds it. And so it doesn't mean you shouldn't act out any of your desires, but you shouldn't act out your desires thinking you're going to quench desire. Right? Act out your desires if you want, but just have a realistic, based on your experience, understanding of what is getting set in motion. Acting out desires reinforces acting out desires. Right? I mean, it's pretty straightforward. And so for as long as we're not pretending, which we tend to do in little and big ways, that if I do this, then that desire will be quenched and somehow there will be a somebody who will be better off. But we've quenched so many desires in our life, but we're not better off. We're still trying to be better off. And this is the viparinama dukkha, this middle dukkha that we talk about, right? Three flavors. Ordinary mental and physical emotional pain. The, the sort of more subtle dissatisfaction that arises by taking a closer look at what happens when pleasant experience comes our way, right? Which is what we'll do for the next week or so. And then the most subtle is the sankara dukkha is really a more subtle dawning of wisdom in the mind that understands it's liberating. It's, it's both a very sobering uh, insight. Like insight into dukkha is liberating. I mean, powerfully liberating. The Buddha organizes his whole path. It's not meant to be depressing. It's meant to be liberating. But it's also very sobering because even though it's not helpful, we have to grieve the loss of our ignorance, because our ignorance is as much part of who we are as anything is. And as it goes away, because we're paying attention in our life, it's really poignant. And so part of that ignorance that's going away is this wrong idea about sense experience that I talked about earlier in the talk tonight, thinking that life, my life of sense experience, is really going to save me. And really, orienting, relating to sense experience with the idea that it's really here for me to use in order to become happy. And, and the sobering insight is sense, experience, life as experience, experience itself can't provide freedom, happiness, release. It really can't. And it's not like a failure of sense experience. The problem is the the setup that there's a somebody who needs something from sense experience. That's the problem. That's why it can never work. Because the, the basic construction that there's a somebody looking for safety, looking for satisfaction, looking for comfort here in this world of sense experience isn't actually what we think it is. So it's a setup right from the start. And the resolution of that dukkha is that realization. But we're never going to look at how it's a, it's just a 
false, a false construction. It isn't what it appears to be. We're not going to really see that until we bump up against this wall. Sense experience will never deliver what I want it to deliver. And then it's sort of like getting cornered. And then when we get cornered, we get interested. We either complain or we get interested. And when we get interested, then eventually, when we're interested in a patient way, in a, in a way that has a lot of humility, eventually we realize, oh, the situation, this kind of existential situation of me here, it's nothing like what I thought it was. And then, and then the, that's the resolution of Sankara Dukkha, to realize there never was a somebody who needed safety, satisfaction, or anything from sense experience. Now, I don't expect anybody, you know, if the Buddha said it, you might get it. It happens at least in the, the text. Some of you have read the original suttas. You know, the Buddha says something like that, and like people have this amazing insight into Sankara Dukkha, right? And they, the mind corrects that misperception. So now the mind, whatever that is, is here, interacting, doing what it does. But there's no part of the mind, at least to a large degree, trying to get anything from experience. So that mind is a mind operating with love, right? the absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. So still motivated to engage, to show up, to do what's next to do, but no longer motivated by... Because greed, anger, and delusion is the mind trying to get something from sense experience. And aversion is when that mind is frustrated by trying to get something from sense experience. Right? And then I get angry, I get frustrated, I want to hit, I want to complain. Or I'm greedy, like I feel like I got the scent of getting the experience that's going to make me happy, so I push you out of the way to get what I want. Right? And delusion is not seeing how that cycle just repeats and repeats and repeats and repeats, and we never really get the satisfaction that sense experience seems to promise. You know, if only... Yeah, if only, if only I can golf, you know, on par. If only I get recognized by this person in the way I want to be recognized, seen by this person in the way I want to be seen, then I'll be happy. And so that gradual insight into Sankara Dukkha, we basically start recognizing that. Oh yeah, that's that promise, that sense experience is going to make somebody happy. Not going to happen. And it's totally okay that it's not going to happen because there isn't somebody in the way that the mind is imagining that needs the world of experience to provide satisfaction. The whole thing is a house of cards. It doesn't really exist in the way my mind is conditioned to frame it, that there's a somebody who needs something. Do you see what, how disorienting it is? Even as we just start to play with this, like, okay, I got whatever number of years left in my life, and all whatever 
my privilege and the sort of circumstances that I have available, you know. And now all of a sudden, I'm not using the stuff in my refrigerator or my toys or my friends. I'm not using any of the stuff the world provides in, in order to be happy. So what am I going to do with my life? You see? Because mostly we've been using life to get satisfaction, the life of experience, to get satisfaction. Now, if we know, one, that life experience can't do that, and two, not only can it do it, but there's nobody there in the sense we think there is that needs life to do it, to provide satisfaction. You see, it's like a complete revolution in then how the mind shows up. That's why so-called saints or enlightened beings or whatever word we'd use to point to people who are operating in this revolutionary way, they really stand out like how they're participating. Like even in a conversation, you never get a sense that they need something from you. Not that they're like afraid to be needing anything. I mean, they'd be totally okay, asking for help if they needed help. But like the Buddha says sometimes, you know, because people would, you know, find that his teachings provocative. And the Buddha would say things like, the world argues with me, but I don't argue. I don't, I'm not in conflict with other people's views. They may be in conflict with what I'm saying, but I don't have a problem with what anybody else says. And it's true, like even with really impactful things like the climate crisis or, you know, kind of the racist system in our country or the economic injustice that gets um, repeated over and over again. It's like we don't have to have a problem with injustice to do good work in the world. We don't have to be personally burdened by even like a friend who has a terrible illness or who has been um, experienced a really terrible injustice, we don't have to be burdened by the uh, suffering in the world in order to show up in a skillful way. See, it's like a, it really is revolutionary. Because we think because there's suffering or injustice or whatever, we should also suffer. See, one way or another, suffering arises because it makes sense with our particular frame, way of framing, way of seeing. So that's why the Buddha says, well, let's get interested in dukkha. Let's get interested in suffering. So now, you know, what we've been doing and what I recommend you do in your small groups tonight, we'll break into small groups in about five minutes, you know, really bring up a couple examples, at least one, but maybe two or three, depending on how much you can cover in your two to three minutes, about how you mind, like examples from tonight or this last week or so, where you experience some mental, emotional, or physical pain. And then how did your mind relate to that pain? And was it skillful? Was it helpful, how your mind related or was it counterproductive? 
Did you find moments when you there was actually some emotional pain, discomfort, physical pain or discomfort, and there was no suffering? There was no part of the mind that had a problem with the mental or physical pain. There was no resistance. Because everything, even pain, is a movement of sensation, a movement of emotion, right? So what is that movement of pain when there's no part of the mind resisting that movement? What is pain when the mind isn't in opposition in any way to it? So those are some, and now don't, don't worry if you don't have examples of pain without resistance because you'll have lots of examples of pain, ordinary, unavoidable, mental, physical, emotional pain with resistance, with friction, right? And just to describe that very clearly, an example of that, somebody said something to me, it was really hurtful, I noticed, right, because of the class, oh yeah, this hurts, this hurts, I don't want it to hurt. I don't want to be the person who's hurt by this. Right? That's the resistance. Right? And to see the sort of piling on. There's the insult, the memory of the insult, the reverberation of that pain. And then there's the not wanting to feel that pain, the wanting to distract herself by thinking that person's a jerk or wanting to go away by dangling some sense treat Oh, honey, that hurts. Have some ice cream. Go shop. Let's see if there's something interesting in the news to distract yourself. And just to sort of describe those strategies and what it feels like. Just to shine a light for each other about how we're conditioned around physical, mental, emotional pain. That's really helpful. So that's what I'm recommending tonight in the small group. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.